Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Maybe I should begin with a very basic question before I kind of go into any elaborate spiel. Do you regard what you just did sitting here as copy? <laughs> like, in what way is it copying to sit the way that we all did together and in what way does thinking about it as copying possibly degrade it as an experience and in what way I don't know maybe would you argue that it goes beyond copying like hey do do those words is the word copying and what this is about, do they connect to each other in your minds in any way? What does it make you think? It's like the most, in one layer, where it, it doesn't, but in, in another layer I can really see so how, how I've learned this, it's, it's very much by copying. But the layer that feels that it's not copying, 
doesn't really like, especially it's for this, like, I'm actually like really excited to like, talk about coffee because I'm, I'm really into that, but just asking about this, um, the, the, the layer that um, you can see that it is copying feels uneasy. It's tricky because, yeah, anyone who would walk into the room while we were all sitting in a circle would see a group of people more or less in an identical postures to each other who were holding those postures for a half hour and uh, it would certainly look <laughs> like copying was going on that first of all we were all imitating each other or perhaps all of us were imitating something or other right and then we're also committing ourselves to holding that posture for half an hour too, you know. And if we were in a Japanese Zen uh, temple sitting, there'd probably be somebody walking around with a stick. <laughs> and if like one of our shoulders was like higher or lower than the other, or we moved around too much, we'd get a whack with a stick. So the, the insistence on, you know, hold, holding the copy, you know, is, is, can, can be quite important in a way. But, but how, how about others of you? Like, do you see any those terms? Uh, sure. I came partly because I love copying. Um, and I haven't read your book, so uh, because the work I do always builds on work of others, because I know uh, I, there's no way I have the knowledge or wisdom or length of experience of the kinds of sources I'm drawing on to interpret that in the environment I'm in today. And so it may be different because I'm not them, but that's the point. I, just, I love to copy good things and some and I just put the name of the source. What's uh, the work? What's your work? Uh, health promotion and disease prevention. Wow, that, I would not have <laughs> thought of that as <laughs> involved copying, first of all. But I guess you're talking about the dissemination of materials, information? Yeah, I guess um, knowledge evidence as we know it today or best practices or promising practices and applying them in another context with a different population isn't going to be the same but it may have some really interesting uh, variations that are, that come out of that um, application of someone else's research or, or things that happen with the group of people they were working with. I mean I think the idea of practices of copying is a really important one that copying is a is a, a method, a process, a way of doing something as much as it is some kind of philosophical fact or something like that. Yeah, I do I think about medicine or disease processes as being an art and a science. You couldn't possibly replicate everything for the same for someone else's body or life experience, maybe. Yeah, even though to some degree we 
we use a particular, we talk about a disease model as being something that is repeatable, right? And, you know, disease is also copying. <laughs> I mean, to think about it, to go back to the 10% of our bodies that are bacteria, like, uh, you know, there is constantly this process of copying going on in our body, and occasionally that process produces pathological effects. Even cancer can be seen of as a process of copying sort of gone out of control and yet you know the other part of it of course is that the normal way in which our cells reproduce and the way in which our physical being kind of persists over time is through copying as well that it's only I can't remember the the nerve the nerve cells in the body I think are the only ones who actually which actually remain in some way but everything else like in a in a period of about six weeks, basically, all the cells of your body will turn over. So the, the very fact of having a body being a body already contains a kind of cycle, a process of copying that's going on at every moment that we're not aware of. Probably if we were aware of it, we might not even feel super comfortable with it and yet in a certain way the only reason why there's any persistence at all is because of this copying this kind of act of repetition that that is continuously going on um but let's re- return to the sitting one more time because I'd just like to push push that a little further. What, what, what is the copy when you're sitting? I think there's a copying of a form like a literal form but also sort of a psychic form and an atmospheric form. Um, you know, you're sitting here with your thoughts and thinking, you know, that I would like to be unique just like everybody else, but it's like just this sea of sort of shared, shared um, experience that you drift in and out of. So you're copying something that's much bigger, or, or floating in something that's much bigger yeah. than itself. Yeah, it's almost like there's there's maybe two kinds of copy involved. I mean, when you're sitting like this, one thing you're doing is you're imitating the Buddha, right? That we sit in the identical way uh, because we're trying to establish um, our own Buddha nature. We're not, not establishing it in the sense of cooking it up, but we sit in imitation of a kind of image of a Buddha, a copy of a Buddha, so that something like Buddha nature might arise, manifest in us. You know, and from a Buddhist point of view, the argument is that that's always already there in each one of us, and that the act of sitting, the practice of sitting, is a practice of allowing 
that Buddha nature to actually come forth. And that it, in some sense, is a practice of copying that allows that to happen. And it happens in many different ways. Like, if you say a mantra, if you do a visualization, if you're looking at an image of a Buddha, um, if you're imitating the posture or visualizing yourself as a Buddha in Tibetan Buddhist practices. In each case, somehow that imitation of the image of the form produces something kind of beyond that form. And I think at the, the other end of the kind of axis of copying uh, is the copy that is you. <laughs> and I think that's what you're referring to when you say that you sit and you meditate and uh, you have this idea of a unique you. You know, and you, you have it when you're walking around all day. Like, and then you sit and okay, it's that you and you observe and then something happens to that you. And like you say, it's somehow it starts to fray at the edges. It kind of dissolves a little bit. Or maybe you can actually see what that you is composed of so that a kind of unitary me, a self that is me, that is mine, that is doing this and doing that, suddenly turns out to be composed of all these little bits and pieces. And when you look for the bits and pieces, you can't really find them either. Like they, they arise in your mind, right? There's different thoughts. And if you try to track them, they're already gone or a new one is coming up. Same with your body. In a certain way, your body feels like it's a, a unit. But then the sensations in your body also seem to be doing the same thing so that you experience... I don't know whether you're experiencing yourself at the cellular level or the level of cellular transformation, but this kind of object, this unitary thing called an eye, somehow dissolves into something else. And it's unclear what that is. <laughs> Or rather, it's unclear how to talk about what that thing is and how to label that thing. Because in a certain way, once you start labeling it, you reintroduce the copying the f as form, as frame into it. And it actually kind of gets in the way of the, of the kind of objective experience of you know, the multiplicity, the, the lack of self, I mean, all the different phrases that have been used to describe what's going on, uh, the dependent origination of the self. You know, in Buddhism, there's this very key phrase, dependent origination, where um, the argument is that nothing has its own essence. Nothing exists as... Uh, something that has a solid, eternally existing essence. Uh, things only appear, only come into being 
uh, independent origination. In other words, there's a multiplicity of causal factors and elements that all come together in a particular moment in creating a particular sense of that moment and of a particular entity, a subject, experiencing a world. That all of that is dependently originated. And when you look for a kind of thing there, you can't find it. What you find is these endless kind of tracks and trails of causes and conditions coming together. Um, and it's a tricky thing. Like you could say that there's a Buddhist critique of copying in that to to just imagine I'm in this thing called a Buddha or even to say I'm meditating like in the Dzogchen tradition one of the key meditation instructions is don't meditate (laughs) that when you're thinking that you're meditating when you're thinking that you're sitting you're already conceptualizing creating a kind of frozen copy of this very dynamic, living, transforming experience that's going on the whole time. And that that is really where where everything is happening. And, I mean, the, the funny thing is that when people speak of a copy in our society as this kind of... Um, you know, deformed original, the truth of the matter is that every copy has its own dynamic, kind of uh, dependently originated life of its own. <laughs> like, there are no identical copies, ultimately. <laughs> like, you can try to freeze something as like a copy that that is merely like a frozen version of something else. But in fact, since everything is impermanent, everything is changing, the copies are changing too. They have their own life in a way. Um, It's interesting that, you know, we can talk about the object in those terms. And like there's a, a very rich kind of history in Western art of kind of thinking through the problem of the copy. Like if you think about Marcel Duchamp, and you think about Fountain, did any of you know what I'm talking about when I say Fountain? Mm-hmm. You know that one of his kind of key gestures was, um, I can't remember when it was, like 1915, 1916, he... Um, buys a kind of used urinal like in some flea market somewhere and he puts it on a pedestal (coughs) at an art show and displays it and he signs it with a kind of pseudonym and he displays it as an art object and actually the art show refused to have it to let it even be shown in the show because they just said this is just a stupid provocation and wasn't really a piece of art. But there's something very profound about it. Like even though this is a mass-produced kind of, I guess, porcelain urinal that, you know, from a certain point of view, everyone would say, oh, it's identical to all of the others. 
Um, in actual fact, it can't be identical. In actual fact, every one of these mass-produced objects has its own kind of um, independent life and history. You know, literally the molecules, the subatomic particles that go to make this object are, are unique and changing. They're not even unique as eternally existing. Like in this copy, this degraded original, everything is happening impermanently, transformatively. And I think Duchamp is pointing to that. So he's saying that we think that only artists through their visions as great individualist creators make unique objects in a certain way. Um, and the mass industrial culture only produces these poor fake copies. But in fact, we're continually surrounded by dependent origination, by impermanence, by really uniqueness in the sense that just as when you're meditating and you discover and feel, you know, the complexity and the constructedness of this of your own being, that everything, the being of everything is like that, exactly like that. And I think that's maybe a key point to emphasize then about the copy. Okay, we can talk about objects and we can think about Marcel Duchamp and, you know, it's great, it's a brilliant art project. When we think about ourselves as copies, I think that's when it gets more challenging. We live in a society where individuality is very highly prized and, like, our sense of our own uniqueness um, is something that we're told to cultivate, something we're told to stress, emphasize, fight for, I would say. You know, that we have to make decisions and we have to separate ourselves off from people and express our uniqueness. But I think what's interesting about meditation is that, you know, on the one hand you meditate and I think what you discover in some way is that you are a copy. And I mean that in a kind of philosophical, sort of theoretical way that your sense of yourself exists in language, for example. You didn't invent that language, you didn't you didn't name yourself for the most part. Most of your sense of your identity is given to you by society. Most of which you're told constitutes your uniqueness is actually part of this enormous kind of structural, beautiful monster that we call society that packages these things. And you're told that you need to fight in order to hold on to that because if you don't hold on to it you turn into this kind of I don't know, what is it that we're afraid if we're not the person with the name, with the will that we think we are what is it we're afraid that we <laughs> we might be <laughs> like nothing at all I guess <laughs> 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 loser. <laughs> loser. Yeah. 
fuck over uh, a mere kind of shell of a being, a kind of, you know, when, you, when you're on the subway or you're, you're in some situation surrounded by a lot of people, it's not hard to think or imagine those people as being kind of identical, clone-like beings. Like we, we can be very dismissive that way. Uh, I mean, what's interesting when you meditate, though, is... Once you let go of that kind of un- constructed uniqueness that you have to hold on to your own essence that is yours, that allows you to exist in the world, it doesn't really turn out that there's nothing there. Like when you med- sit and meditate, you don't, it's not like nothing happens, right? <laughs> Instead, there's like this very complicated, rich, energetic, dynamic, interdependent, um, moving mass of thought and feeling going on. And then, maybe if you go a stage deeper than that, you experience a kind of awareness of that. And that awareness, you can then turn your awareness on that awareness and maybe you let go of your own conceptual identity, that copy, and then what is there? Like what what happens when you don't hold on to those thought processes anymore? How would you, what could you say about that? Or do you have a problem saying anything about mm-hmm. that? Yeah. So I'm sorry, I'm just trying to determine if I understand the question, but I mean, what you're describing is conceptual senses of self, really, right? Yeah, but then in meditation, what happens when you kind of unravel or let those... It's something like death, really, which most people, I think, are afraid of because it's unknown, right? Right. So I think it just ties into a fear of the unknown. Like Any any, uh, evolved sense, a, a sense of self is evolved over time, so the more you fashion an identity for yourself through a relationship, the more you are know yourself, right? And so unraveling that begs the question, what am I? And the answer is nothing. And nobody really wants to hear that about themselves after a certain point. You've invested a lot of time and energy into being yourself. But what's the experience when you actually do it? Like the experience of nothing? Or what is, what is the experience when you're sitting? Ah, uh, see. Yeah. Because you're afraid, maybe, of nothing, but then, like, if we really turn into nothing when we meditate, it. <laughs> I, I mean, I've, I've never had the experience of turning into nothing. Um, because my thoughts, I, 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 like, my thoughts create the thinker kind of thing, so I'm always, even in the, you know, and I, I have some, I think, sort of, I just practice sitting with myself. 
but uh, there's always some kind of dialogue. So I, I don't, I, I'm not sure I know the answer to the question of what happens when that dissolves, because... It didn't dissolve. It hasn't happened. How about other people? I think there's tiny moments <laughs> where I sort of experience a sense of, if I don't have to be anything, I can be anything. I, it's it's free. Mm -hmm. In that, if you if you can let go, stuff can come in. Right, there is some kind of freedom outside of conceptuality or conceptual thinking in mm -hmm. a certain way. Mm -hmm. Even the fact of awareness of being aware of thinking indicates some kind of gap there, and. You know, when you try to track your thinking when you sit, like there are lots of gaps in a certain way, like it's never a solid wall of thought, even if it feels kind of solid right at the very beginning, it then turns out to be like a 200,000 radios all playing at the same time. <laughs> but there's space even in that, in a certain way, you know, that it's not just one radio, it's... <laughs> You, you were about to say something too. I was, I'm not sure about one. Um, it, it was about the, whether it's nothing, and it's not nothing, but I'm not sure I can articulate that very clearly because it's not a very verbal place. Uh, but it feels very big, and it feels kind of connected, and I'm not sure I have more words, but yeah. I experience it as nothing. I mean, I I, what I would say is that the, the practice of copying in Buddhism, and I would say also in yoga, aims at producing a state of non-conceptual awareness. That you think all there are is concepts, and the concepts are always part of a certain dynamic of copying, in a way. And yet, when you become aware... You, you also become aware of something like a non-conceptual aspect of experience of being. Uh, which brings out the issue of sameness. <laughs> uh, it's a really tricky concept both in Western philosophy and in Buddhism and other Asian religious traditions because in some sense, as soon as I say sameness, if I were to say meditation will produce a sense of sameness, it doesn't sound so good and it immediately sounds like we're back in the trap, the copy is this inauthentic thing. But if, if sameness wasn't being identical but merely the lack of differentiation of not making discriminations and that, you know, when you're talking about meditating in a sense, when you let go of the streams of thought and stop adding to them and kind of trying to organize them and package them and all the rest of the stuff we're doing all the time uh, that stopping of processes of differentiation uh, 
exposes you to some deeper level of, I would say, non-conceptual sameness. And that's a kind of profound experience when we talk about something larger, something bigger. Uh, you know, I mean, I think God is one of the words that people have used historically to talk about that. Uh, cosmic unity, I mean, there's all kinds of different ways of, of labeling that, but the point isn't really to label it. The point is that through a certain kind of practice, and a practice that involves imitation, you can expose yourself and recognize in yourself or realize yourself that kind of primordial awareness, sameness, that is not conceptual. And in Buddhism, in Tibetan Buddhism, one of the ways that's talked about is the two truths, the relative truth and the absolute truth. And on the one hand, they're said to coincide. You know, the, the relative, when you look at any particular phenomenon deeply enough and you see how interdependently it doesn't really exist in the way that it seems to exist, that it's actually reliant on a vast chain of causes and conditions that all themselves rely on other things. That in itself is the same as the absolute truth when you recognize it. It's <coughs> of emptiness, that there's no essence to anything, and yet, um, well, I don't know what to say about it. <laughs> <laughs> the interesting thing, I think, as well, is to turn that the other way around and simply to say that the reason why relative forms of designation, of labeling things, of saying this is that works at all, is because of this underlying non-conceptual sameness. Like the only reason it works, if you really think about it, why does it work to say tree and to be able to think about a tree? Like that's an amazing leap. You know, the connection between the word, the image, you know, for those of you that know about semiotics, the whole sign, signifier, signified, referent, chain, there. It's amazing that that works at all. And in a way, it can only work because somehow this non-conceptual sameness kind of holds, holds it up in a certain way, allows it, facilitates it. And... You know, there are different places in Western philosophy that kind of point to this. You know, the philosophy of someone like Lucy Gray, who takes it um, in a feminist direction and talks about it as a maternal sameness, you know, which is actually very similar to Buddhism, that when Buddhism speaks about the underlying non-conceptual sameness, uh, that's what's called prajnaparamita, that's the mother of the Buddhas. You know, so emptiness and this maternal sameness are kind of connected in a, in a certain way. Um, I'm not quite sure, so many different paths I could, I could sort of take this and sort of develop it, but I guess what I would point to 
is like when you think of Western philosophical approaches to understanding things and then you think about what Buddhism does I think the key point with Buddhism is that there's a practice that enables a different way of understanding what is and that practice whether it's meditation or mantras or visualization um, the whole point of it is to go beyond mere conceptual juggling that's not to say that philosophical juggling of concepts is bad um, in a certain way the whole point with Buddhism is that the philosophy and the practice are also one and the same they should in a certain way be identical but the practice leads beyond the conceptual in the western tradition it's hard to say to what degree practice a practice exists in the same way I mean there are points for example when we talk about psychoanalysis you know the analytic session where you talk and engage with the analyst that's a practice too and something enters into that picture that can't simply be you know studied or recited from a book that's important I think it's interesting to think about Marx and Marxism in relationship to Buddhism in the same way that you know Marx says in the thesis on Feuerbach uh, the philosophers until now have only interpreted the world the point is to change it and he introduces into that notion of philosophizing this kind of field that can't simply be dealt with at the conceptual level where somehow the concept is related to something else going beyond it and uh, there's a challenge there and I'm increasingly interested in thinking about the ways in which Marxism and Buddhism relate to each other uh, for a, a couple of different reasons and I think I can tie it back into copying in a, in a few minutes but, but in Mahayana Buddhism you don't practice just for your own individual liberation you practice for the liberation of all sentient beings um, but that hasn't happened yet <laughs> and sometimes it feels to me in Buddhist communities there's a certain lack of urgency about it happening that seems kind of strange given the situation that we actually find ourselves in and so this is a very difficult thing to say but I do think that the pathos of the communist invasion of Tibet in the 50s uh, it's not just a simple matter of good and evil and the dark forces of communism attacking a kind of pure Buddhist society Mao's communists had a profound Buddhist critique of existing Buddhist society in Tibet that in a certain way the actual liberation of all sentient beings also wasn't happening in Tibet and the 
critique of Buddhism in Tibet as feudal, as being a feudal society in which a large <coughs> group of people were dominated by a few. I, I, I mean, I think the Dalai Lama himself recognizes it very clearly that this was like a very piercing critique of what Buddhism was in that society. On the other hand, <laughs> it has to be said that the communist attempts at producing a f completely free human society also have failed. And I think part of the reason that is <coughs> is that the communist um, critique of property, of grasping, of ownership um, was insufficient. And specifically, uh, the communist critique of subjectivity of the self and the self's grasping uh, was quite weak in a certain way. I was just teaching um, Freud's Civilization and Its Discontents uh, earlier today, and there's a beautiful passage where Freud says, you know, the communists think that uh, property is simply uh, a matter of the bourgeoisie, and that uh, when they get rid of the bourgeoisie, like the problem of property will be gone. But uh, when they get rid of the bourgeoisie, what are they going to? Who are they going to turn on next? Like, what, what is what's going to happen to property at that point? Because ownership is based on property. <laughs> um, in the Buddhist system, property comes from grasping. There's a word upadana, which means grasping, and it's one of the twelve links of dependent origination how things seem, come to seem to have an essence. Uh, that it's grasping this as mine that um, creates property in a certain way. We're now living through a moment, and this is where I'm going to tie it back into copying, uh, where we're in the middle of an intellectual property war, where suddenly we realise how many laws have been constructed to give people ownership of, you know, everything from a phrase like just do it or I'm loving it to like a certain image, to a certain colour, that all of these things have become somebody's property. And that at a certain level we recognise the madness of this, that we've somehow come to believe that everything can be someone's property. And from a Marxist point of view, it's very easy to see that we live in a capitalist system in which, um, you know, everything is legislated and turned into property for the benefit of a class of people who are property owners who then disenfranchise the vast majority of people who actually produce and make these copies, the mass-produced copies that we're, we're continuously surrounded by, and that in some sense we need in order to live. But I think we all recognize at this point that um, in order to get rid of property, in order to truly critique that notion of private property, we need some kind of resources, some kind of practice that enables us to truly free ourselves of that grasping at property, at what is mine, 
there really is at the core of what property is. And my sense of it is, is that Buddhism has great richness and resources in a certain way, precisely at that point that, that it's our own, the very sense of ownness, which is what we're doing when we sit and meditate and we're examining what it means to say my own, my own mind. Like that is the very place in which a new kind of politics of copying of property could emerge. It's unlikely to emerge so long as Buddhism sees itself as a purely internal phenomenon. And I understand that that's a kind of uh, grossly unfair generalization about the complex ways in which people are Buddhists, you know, that there is a Buddhist activism, is, it's very real. But I think this can be developed in very interesting and powerful ways, and it needs to be developed as something that is both political and a practice of meditation. And it's very hard to see how that could happen, and yet it needs to happen. And I think, I think that's our, our challenge as meditators in a certain way, or that's what I feel my challenge is. Um, so yeah, maybe I'll, I would, I'll stop there. But, you know, when you, when you sit, you're told to sit to liberate all sentient beings. <laughs> And we really should do that. <laughs> you know, we'll start. <laughs>